Welcome to Teacher Quit Talk. I'm Miss Redacted. And I'm Mrs. Frazzled. Every week we explore the teacher exodus to find out what, if anything, could get these educators back in the classroom. We've all had our moments where we thought, what the hell am I doing here? From burnout to bureaucracy to soul-sucking stressors and creative dead ends. From recognizing when it was time to go to navigating feelings of guilt and regret afterwards, we're here to cut out the gaslighting and get real about what it means to leave teaching. We've got insights from former teachers from all over the country who have seen it all. So get ready to be disturbed. Join us on Teacher Quit talk to laugh through the pain of the U.S. education system. We'll see you there. Hi, I'm Frances Callier. And I'm Angela V. Shelton. And we're Frangela. You know what you need in your life? Hmm. The Final Word Podcast. Yes, you do. That's right. It is the final word on all things political and pop cultural. Where we make real news real funny. Where we inspire you so you can hashtag resist. Subscribe and get a new episode of the Final Word Podcast each week. It's the news we think you need to hear. That's right. We think you need to hear it. Okay? Yeah, it's what we say so. That's right. And because all we do is give, every Thursday you can listen to our hysterical podcast, Idiot of the Week. We round up the stupid because you know what? Somebody has to. Okay. All we do is give. Дамы и господа, добро пожаловать в Prevail. Это второй сезон нашей борьбы с криминальными сволочами. Ваш ведущий Грег Олиар. I'm Greg Olear. This is Prevail. Welcome to the program. We've got a great show. The author of Strong Men. Mussolini to the present, Ruth Ben-Ghiat is here. Before we start, I'd like to say thanks to BetterHelp for supporting Prevail. For 10% off your first month, go to BetterHelp, that's H-E-L-P dot com slash Greg, G-R-E-G. Start living a better life today. Now, Ruth, as I said, is the author of the book about strongmen, so she knows a lot about dictators. She also has a great newsletter slash column on Substack called Lucid, L-U-C-I-D, Lucid, which I encourage you to sign up for, subscribe to. We have a pretty engaging conversation. She's um, an academic. She's a professor of history at NYU. She studies dictatorships and dictators, and her work is becoming, unfortunately, more and more relevant as uh, 2020 eases into 2021, eases into 2020. 22. So I asked her about lots of stuff that's in the book about signs of encroaching autocracy, about just a lot of Trump content, obviously. Three takeaways I just want to say up front, you know, so you can listen for it when we get to those points. I just want to underscore these points that that she's going to make in the interview. One thing is that a tactic that, that strongmen use is that they launch attacks on history. They try to erase the crimes of their countries, you know, the sins of the past. So Putin in Russia trying to rehabilitate Stalin, for example, um, is an example of, hey, let's let's look past all this bad stuff Stalin did. Putin going back to the time of the czars, even you know, the bad stuff that the czars did. And in this country, I think the whole idea of making America great again, as if it was uh, great way back in the past when slavery still happened and somehow isn't great now, is also an attempt to erase history, as is 
what we're seeing in real time with January 6th, right? The Republicans in the House and the Senate both, even though they might have said one thing in the immediate aftermath of the insurrection now, are singing a different tune because it's a, you know, it's it's the Republican Party is a fascist party at this point. It just is. It, it has all the hallmarks. It has been completely taken over by um, the personality cult leader, Donald Trump. So that's one point. Another point is we talk about, and Ruth brings up Trump's criminality. Dictators, strongmen historically of the 20th and 21st centuries have criminal backgrounds. They're criminals, all of them. Yeah, Putin is a criminal. You know, Stalin was a criminal. Stalin <laughs> bankrolled this bank robbery to uh, finance the revolution. I mean, these guys are, they're all crooks, right? And when she talks about Trump's criminality, this is not a surprise to, to me or to really anybody listening to this podcast knows that, that I and, and LB and Zev Shalev and lots of people have been talking about this for years now about how the guy is a crook. But as she says, as Ruth says in the interview, it's really astonishing how slow uh, people have been to grasp this. And when we go back, you know, years from now and look back, it's really going to astonish historians how this obvious criminal ever got to be president of the United States. It's, it's kind of insane. The last point, and I think this is a very important one, after listening to the interview again this morning, I was editing it, and um, I'm going to write about this, I think, anyway, but the idea of virility and machismo being part of the whole strongman thing, you know, it's part of their bag of tricks, right? Her work is really the first work that focuses on that, that elevates that idea to something more substantial because, as she says, even reviewers of her book don't like to talk about it. Like, they, they think it's, she said, one review said it was unseemly to discuss the sex lives of some of these people, which are, you know, they're dictators. It's relevant when you have a guy like a Gaddafi who has an entire apparatus of government set up to bring him women and girls. You know, that seems important. It seems like something we shouldn't brush aside. And... You see it now. You know, you see it with Trump. I mean, it's it's sort of ridiculous because as as, uh, as the great Noel Kassler is is always fond of of tweeting uh, humorously. Here's a guy who wears a girdle, has uh, you know, poofy uh, hair, kind of like somebody's grandmother might might have. Uh, wears a, a lady's wristwatch and lifts, and yet. He's this this macho. He's perceived as this alpha male, um, this really macho guy. And I think you know part of the things with him and and the uh, you know the Access Hollywood tape and and all of the allegations against him. I think on some level, part of the part of his audience uh, likes that. I really do. I think that it appeals to some of these guys that look at Trump and see this is an alpha male that just does whatever he wants and the women are there for him and blah, 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 blah. And I, I you know, it, it, it's, it's worth thinking about and discussing further, certainly in light of, of some of the, the stuff that, that Ruth talks about in her book and in this interview. I think also, this is my own theory here, I think that the, the whole MAGA COVID response, this rejection of vaccines, this rejection of masks, this rejection of anything regarding safety at all is itself 
kind of a, a way to show off and be quote unquote macho, right? It, it shows, you know, by going out there and not wearing the mask and not doing this, it means they're presenting as more alpha or stronger or more, you know, whatever than uh, guys like me, you know, guys who were, uh, I don't know, smart. <laughs> um, but I think that's part of it. I really think deep down the subtext isn't just, I believe Trump and I'm a moron. I think the subtext is, hey, I don't want to be perceived as weak. I want to be perceived as strong by not wearing a mask, by rejecting the vaccines, by, there was the one guy that, uh, I forget, he was a, a fighter of some kind, who just went home from the hospital, just unstrapped himself from the machines and went home, uh, you know, because he, he didn't want to be perceived as weak. He wanted to be perceived as tough. So when these guys get COVID, you know, when Trump gets COVID, we don't find out how bad it is until later. Ron DeSantis right now, I don't know if he had COVID, certainly appears that way. He was gone for two weeks, and when he came back, he was coughing and wheezing. So a guy like DeSantis, who was basically taking the Trump template and running with it, cannot be perceived as having weakness, especially weakness that's his own damn fault. So um, I think the virility is a big, it, it, it's a big takeaway from this interview and from the book. And, you know, to me, I thought pretty fascinating. So anyway, enough of my uh, prattle. Like I said, Ruth's book is called Strong Men, Mussolini to President. It's really fantastic. Um, it's not a geeky history book. There's a lot of stuff in it, but it's, it's you know, it's very well written and easy to read. And I mean, it's, it's hard to read about some of the stuff that she describes as horrifying, but the, the, the style is, uh, is easy to read. Sometimes you get history books that are just, you can't get through them, but this is not one of those. It's very well written, as is her, her Substack, and, and it's one that I personally subscribe to, and I encourage you to do the same. So, without further ado, we'll be right back with Ruth Ben-Ghiat. Joe Rogan knows He knows the cure If Rona comes Here's what to a bad cough and you want to get off take viagra take viagra when you have loss of smell and you're horny as hell take viagra aching head stuck in bed seeing red almost dead and you're grouchy will rise all the guys who take Pfizer's like the size of their Fauci. Fauci. If at Biden you see when so sick you can't breathe, take Viagra. Mix your ventilation with some masturbation, it's the cure. When you're blue in the balls, and blood oxygen falls like Niagara With your last dying breath As you stave off your death Take Viagra Take Viagra Ruth Ben-Ghiat Welcome to the Prevail Podcast. Glad to be speaking with you. 
Um, I've been wanting to have you on for for a long time because your book is fantastic. Your book is called Strong Men, Mussolini to the Present. And there's a lot of strong men about now. So I want to I want to talk to you about all kinds of stuff like that. The stuff that's in, in your book, strong men past, strong men uh, present and and all of that. But before we start, I want to I want to I want to find out more about you. Now, you're a professor of history and Italian studies at NYU. And you're known for the work on on fascism and on as and on dictators, right? So why did you choose this niche? What, hmm. what, what about it appeals to you? Um, well, it's not too appealing. Uh, you end up like to, to write Strongman, I had to immerse myself for two years in the heads of these awful people, both the leaders and their followers. But I, I actually got interested in the subject in a kind of roundabout way because I grew up uh, in a beach town in Southern California, um, Pacific Palisades, where a lot of uh, Germans, uh, famous German exiles from Nazism had come to, to my town and Santa Monica and all around there. And um, you could see their traces. And uh, like my high school math teacher was Arnold Schoenberg's son. And so I was very interested in like, what, what did it mean to have to flee from your country because a horrible dictator takes over? So I was interested in exile. And I write today mm -hmm. a lot about exile and I write in the book about exile. So that's kind of how I got into it. And then when I went to graduate school in history, I decided to work on Italy because it wasn't as researched as Nazi Germany. And I felt that there could be more original work to be done. That's interesting because... I, and I think you and you make this point in, in, in the book really strongly, no, no pun intended, that Mussolini really is the template for all this stuff. And it was very much Hitler's template. I wrote a piece a couple of weeks ago about the great dictator, the movie. And there's mm -hmm. that great scene in it where, you know, Chaplin is basically Hitler and the Italian guys. Mm -hmm. I forget what the actor's name is, this big portly man, you know, physically much larger than him. And he's trying to make himself um, Chaplin is to make himself seem tough. But he's immediately overshadowed by the Italian as soon as he walks in the room and there's like nothing he can do about it. And, and at least for a, for a short period of time, that that was the dynamic or it seemed to be between those two guys, even though now looking back on it, I think if you pull people off the streets and asked, everybody would be like, oh, no, no, Hitler was the guy. And Mussolini was kind of the. Yeah. You know, and I really, I wanted to tell this story because it was Mussolini, not only he was the first one to do this and Hitler idolized him. In fact, it's very, uh, they had a very, um, ended up being very tormented relationship, but it started with Hitler uh, bothering Mussolini constantly for his autograph, for pictures of himself, because, you know, Mussolini started fascism in 1919 and three years later he was prime minister. So it was meteoric rise. And then he, and he's also more relevant for today because he uh, was prime minister in a, in a democracy for three right. years. And during that time, he laid down the template of how to destroy democracy. And then he had a crisis because uh, he was going to be kicked out, perhaps, and forced to resign because there was a, a, a corruption scandal, also very 21st century. And then he declared dictatorship. But Hitler watched all of this and Hitler hugely admired him and took notes on what he was doing. And Mussolini didn't want anything to do with Hitler because he thought he was a loser because here's somebody who tried to have a putsch and it didn't work and he went to jail. 
And then, of course, later the tables turned. But it's really from Mussolini that we get a lot of the personality cult and the attacks on the press and all of that. So I wanted to kind of restore the full story um, of how uh, Hitler learned from Mussolini, because these guys learn from each other. And so the first learning experience was Hitler learning from Mussolini, not the other way around. It's you say a war on the press. I mean, Mussolini literally went and destroyed the presses, right? He, he just it wasn't even calling out the editors. It was like, we're going to just make this stuff not work so that the newspapers can't be printed. Well, and he was a journalist. The thing is, Mussolini was a really skilled journalist. And one thing I I didn't realize um, when I uh, started to research strongmen, how many of the most successful uh, strongmen come from a background of either journalism or uh, reality TV in Trump's case, <laughs> or uh, other kind of experience with the media. And this serves them well. And so Mussolini was an extremely skilled journalist. He was a sloganeer. He was a very good public speaker. He was good on camera. So he had all of the attributes. So he knew how to destroy the press uh, because he was a journalist. What's the, is there anything about Mussolini in particular that you think is the most misunderstood or something that people have forgotten the most about him? You know, of course, we think about Hitler because for many reasons, but because of uh, his war against the Jews that ended up in the Holocaust. And Mussolini next to Hitler seems like the kind of, quote, nicer fascist. And he didn't go after the Jews for 16 years. Uh, he came again, he, came, he became dictator in 1925. He didn't go after the Italian Jews until 1938. And so even the, the kind of bias that there was at the time has endured where you think, oh, Mussolini wasn't racist. But what Mussolini did is he went after, uh, he had colonial violence. And in 1931, he committed what the Libyans considered to be genocide. He herded hundreds of thousands of people into concentration camps in the desert, uh, forced marches, and he gassed, you know, he used gas on the colonial uh, holdings of Italy. And because people don't really think about Italy as having a colonial empire, and Italy is always considered kind of a second-rate country and not taken seriously. All of this has been kind of lost to history, all of this violence. And again, Hitler is looking at what's happening with the concentration camps. And they happen to be in the desert, but they were concentration camps. As, and there were many penal colonies in Italy, too. So his violence was extremely racist, but it was against uh, Black people and Arabs. And so uh, what mattered in terms of the Holocaust trajectory was Jews. So there was this mistaken idea that Mussolini, uh, because he didn't go after the Jews, he didn't commit racist crimes. And that endured for decades and decades after 1945. Did Italy still control Ethiopia when Mussolini was there? They did, right? So Mussolini invaded Ethiopia yeah. uh, and, and they had already Eritrea and Libya and Somalia and some other small holdings. But uh, the Ethiopian war was actually more important. Uh, it was just as important as Munich in terms of breaking international laws. Um, they used uh, you know, hundreds of tons of poison gas. And it was a testing of the international system. And Hitler was watching, because by then Hitler was in power. And the fact that they were allowed to get away with it set the tone for all of these other infractions up through Munich. But because 
the targets um, were, you know, black people in, in Ethiopia and the Horn of Africa, uh, it wasn't taken seriously. Yeah, there was a lot of that. And of course, I, you know, the parallels to what's happening now, um, you know, in terms of countries invading sovereign territory and nothing happening. I mean, you know, that's yeah. what that's what Putin's up to. I mean, he invaded Crimea and we didn't do anything. We just slapped, you know, we slapped some sanctions on and called it a day. And now yeah. we're paying the price for that, you know. And and we should know better now because we've had a century almost of, uh, I mean, with, with Putin, you have to go after their money because yeah. Putin, Putin is not just an autocracy, it's a kleptocracy. And the entire, he's like a parasite uh, who preys on, you know, society and sucks all the profits and raids businesses. And if you go after his money, which means, uh, you know, also going after his Western enablers, all the banks, the law firms who help him hide his money, uh, then you would get a different response for him. But nobody really wants to do that. There, there is progress on that front in general. Um, in the just right now, there's a new bipartisan congressional anti-kleptocracy Congress, a caucus. Um, there's a lot going on, but nobody is standing up to Putin in particular. Yeah, and we're gonna we're gonna need to. That's gonna that's gonna come to a head at at, at some point. But I just I think it's interesting that um, you know some of the stuff that's happening now. I think people don't take it seriously because most of the primary uh, sources, the witnesses, people who lived through fascism um, in that first wave during the Second World War are, are either very old or dead. And so, you know, as with Mussolini, we sort of forget what he did. Um, people's perceptions of history are colored by movies they watch and stuff they read. And so Sean Hannity can go on TV and be like, well, Stalin wasn't that bad. He was our ally in the Second World War. You know, how bad could he have been? Well, he was pretty bad, man. He was bad. Yeah. And well, so, the, you know, um, one of the reasons I wrote the book, there were two main reasons. One was I saw, I'm a historian by training, and I saw that as each autocrat took power today, they started to um, try and erase the memory of their crimes, of their country's crimes. They start rehabilitating, like, stay with Putin. Putin started to rehabilitate Stalin. You know, cautiously at first, he put up some statues to him. And now then he passed laws where you're not allowed to talk about the Nazi Soviet pact. Um, you now he's just uh, sentenced. Uh, he's extended the prison sentence of a historian who writes about the gulags. Um, the, you know, extermination of the kulaks in the early 30s is now off limits. So I saw that um, there and elsewhere, the global right was intervening very strenuously to cover up their traces. And when you cover up violence, it creates the conditions for violence to happen again. So that was one major uh, reason. It's also a reason that I had to do some you know, difficult research. Uh, one of the other areas where uh, people are trying to cover up crimes is uh, the history of uh, Pinochet in Chile. Mm -hmm. So you, there's a famous uh, um, photo of a rally, the, the Proud Boys in 2020. One of them has a Confederate flag, so that's that history being rehabilitated. The other has a t-shirt, which is very popular among the global right. Pinochet did nothing wrong. And this is 
like whitewashing the history of his torture. So I wanted to really tell the story and I went to great lengths to, you know, find uh, testimonials and describe in difficult, you know, detail. It's not very fun reading, uh, but I wanted to describe in detail what happened, what they did so that nobody could say that uh, he did nothing wrong <laughs> or yeah. that it wasn't so bad or it was an exaggeration. They so, used the meme of the helicopter too, of the throwing the person out of the helicopter, yeah. which is straight out of the Pinochet kind of playbook, right? Yeah, and um, it's important to know about these things because they get recycled from strongman to strongman. So uh, when Duterte uh, in the Philippines, he started, when he was campaigning, he, you know, he distinguished himself as a strongman by talking about violence a lot. And one of the things is he said is that he had thrown somebody out of a helicopter when he was doing his military service and he would do it again. And, and this is, if you know history, that's a direct reference to this kind of, you know, yeah. Pinochet, military junta, uh, macho, ethos and but you have to know about it to get it to get how serious they are it's interesting that you talk about the rehabilitation because then you think about it in terms of trump and his and his supporters i mean one of the one of the things he did i mean he did so many controversial things but he put andrew jackson's portrait in the white house um in, a, in sort of a, a place of honor um andrew jackson is uh you know, I don't know if you'd call him a dictator, but he certainly killed a lot of people. He was the president that was basically said, all right, no more treaties. We're just going to kill all the Indians now and take their land. I'm simplifying, but that's basically what happened. So by putting that picture up in the White House, he's sending a signal to anybody, uh, again, that, that's, that's aware of this, you know, what he's doing. And I think the the outrage about the critical race theory is, is, is the same thing. It's them not wanting to... Uh, go back and look at the past and the sins that that have been committed and, um, you know, to make it seem like everything was hunky-dory and that we did nothing wrong. Pinochet did nothing wrong. Roger Stone did nothing wrong. Trump did nothing wrong. You know, all, all of the same things. That's an interesting point. And, and it's, re it's really, uh, it's very serious what's going on now. It was only a matter of time with book banning, but this kind of assault on the education system trying to remove... Um, it was int very interesting because one, um, it was a state representative, uh, I think in Pennsylvania, who was um, either Pennsylvania or Texas, who was advocating for hundreds of books to be banned. And he said that uh, the books, the criteria for him were books that would make uh, students feel discomfort or yeah. guilt. And this is very important because when you're trying to have an authoritarian culture, you have to uh, make people feel good about persecution and you have to make them feel good about the nation. And so what you need to do is kind of squish their moral compass, like, like do things that extinguish their, their sense of morality. And so by he, he was exactly saying that we don't want them to have to read anything that's going to have pings of conscience, because then maybe they won't want to be racist like we're asking them to be. And so that's part of what's going on with critical race theory and the, the whole uh, opposition to the 1619 project. Um, it's, it's, it's really... Um, it's t it's part of the shift of a political culture toward autocracy, and whenever uh, autocrats come to power, uh, history comes under attack.
Yeah, it was in Texas, I believe that guy that that, that did Texas, that because I yeah. I did a fake ad on my on my uh, my show here about it. But the the, the um, this guy bans this thing in Texas, right? He's like, we're not going to I don't think it passed, but he that's what he was trying to do. We don't want this book. We don't want that book. Little does he know, <laughs> kids don't read books. He has to get on TikTok and ban that and ban YouTube if he wants yeah. to get to the kids. Like yeah, banning absolutely. a Toni Morrison book is not going to, you know, it's not going to have the impact that maybe it would have a hundred years ago to, to when books were the only uh, vehicle to learn anything about the outside world. That's a good point. Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting. I, I here here's a historical question for you. Now, if Mussolini's sort of the template for for the strong man, and I think. Um, what's his name? Ataturk, the guy in Turkey around that same period of time, maybe. Um, do you think it has to do with the timing of the end of the First World War and the decline of monarchies at that time? Because if, if, you, if you look back historically, there's always been obviously kings and queens and emperors and stuff like that, but most of them aren't really strong men. I mean, there's some example. Caligula was probably a strong man. I think Ivan the Terrible, after he went to the did his little retreat where he had the boyars beg him to come back came back as a strong man you know he invented the state secret police and had these guys on black horses terrorizing everybody but most of the kings weren't really strong men in the way that mussolini or hitler or putin are so i mean do you think that it that it has something to do with that or is it just coincidental no there were lots of um obviously lots of tyrants in the past and mm -hmm. Um, you did have monarchs who were extremely popular and had like a version of personality cult, but it was really World War I that, that was a mass trauma event that caused multiple empires to fall, that uh, caused uh, desensitization to violence upon, uh, among millions and millions of men uh, and civilians. And there was this sense that old authorities were falling and there were also there was fear of, of male authority um, being compromised because so many men had been killed or were disabled there were rumblings of anti-colonial activity so there was there was a kind of um, set of circumstances that uh, made it fruit, fruitful for um, new kinds of political systems to come into being. And so you had the Russian Revolution and you had communism that comes out of the war and you had fascism. Right. Um, and, but you really need for uh, the modern strongmen, you need mass media and mass society. And that's what you didn't have before uh, because the personality cults of the 20 and 21st century depend on a certain configuration of media and uh, it, you didn't have that before, so it couldn't sustain them. And that's why they're, they're so effective. Think about Trump uh, tweeting over 100 times every day and the immediacy. And, and one of the interesting things that writing the book is um, in the propaganda chapter, I show that um, obviously some things have changed. The information technologies that these strongmen use are very different. Mussolini had newsreels and Hitler mastered the radio. And so today, social media. But some other things haven't changed at all. Like the rules of personality cults are exactly the same. Um, you have to be a man of the people. And so that's the populist stuff. And then you have to be a superman. You have to be an everyman and you have to be a superman. And so when you look at somebody like Trump, 
I started writing about him and was able to predict much of what he did because he was completely familiar to me from studying Mussolini and studying uh, you know, fascism and the way that uh, their propaganda worked. Who is, I, I, I wanna to get to Trump later, I don't wanna to get too sidetracked, but wh which dictator or which strongman does he remind you the most of? Is it Mussolini or is it somebody else or? Um, he does remind me of Mussolini because he's a superb performer. And there's certain things that he does, like try to be all things to all people. So that's how he, he kind of will say one thing to evangelicals and another thing to you know mafiosi and he and housewives and and so all of these guys have these very eclectic constituencies because they have no morals and they'll tell each group what they want to hear. So, uh, but in his in his bodily stuff, he also reminds me of Mussolini. Um, his jetting out of his jaw and just a lot of the stuff he does, the slogans. Yeah, um, the body type, the, 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 you know, alleged propensity for, for having a lot of pretty women around. That's a disturbing chapter in your book. We'll get to that. Um, so let's go to, uh, I want to talk about your book a little bit, um, which again is called Strong Men, Strong Men, Mussolini to the present. So the way that you have it set up for anybody who hasn't read it, who's listening is it starts off sort of with, you talk about how, how they come to be, how they take power. And then at the end, you talk about how they fall. And in the middle, you talk about um, what you call the five tools of rule. So um, what, what I'd like to do is just, I, I'm going to throw out the five tools of rule. If you could just comment on each. Um, yeah. The first one, I, I would say it's nationalism, really, or you said man of the yeah. people, right? Okay. So what, what's an example of that, or what do you mean by that? Yeah, so it's called a greater nation, and so it is about nationalism, but it's about how they um, use nationalism in a very specific way. So, for example, on the one hand, they promise utopia. So everything's going to be great in the future and they modernize and they, they deal with infrastructure. They build airports and, and, you know, Mussolini built all the sports stadiums. So they're Mr. Modern and Hitler with the Audubon, but they also channel nostalgia. And this is really important because it's not making the nation great. It's also making it great again. Right. So, so, and they all have this again. So Mussolini was like, I'm going to revive the Roman Empire. Uh, today we have Erdogan in Turkey who's obsessed with reviving the Ottoman Empire. So that again <laughs> is yeah. always there. So that's an example of uh, stuff that these are these nationalist dynamics that actually haven't changed that much. It's interesting too, because when you promise something to come again, <laughs> you're really promising nothing. You're just kicking the can. You're promising some some vision on the horizon that that ultimately never happens. Every week is infrastructure week and nothing gets built yeah, kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, the second one is propaganda. So that I, we talked about that a little bit before, but um, that's just which is control of the uh, of the media, right? And, and, and it's control of the media, it's personality cults. It's also um, how in each age, uh, media was used uh, not only to spread the dogma, but also to um, create a climate of, of fear um, so that you had, well, and I don't, I want to say that I don't, uh, I don't have Stalin in my book. I don't have Mao and Castro because I wanted to do, uh, except for Gaddafi, uh, I have all right-wing strongmen. 
uh, because I wanted to show the lines between fascism and then the post-war military coups up to people like Trump and Bolsonaro. You, so you have this um, attempt to use propaganda to make violence acceptable. So the point of the book is to show how all these tools inter, interact. So you need the propaganda to spread the violence. Right. Um, you need the nationalism, making the nation great again, to help with the personality cult. So it all like it all interlocks. Yeah, you can't have you can't have one without the other. Yeah. Um, okay, the next one is called virility. You you could virility, which I think is interesting, and this isn't something that people think about that much. This I the the, the part about Gaddafi is horrifying. It's one of the worst things I read it before bed. It was one of the worst things I've ever. Oh, that's read. not a good time to no. read it. It's awful. I, uh, yes, I had to do uh, when I was, so that's a chapter uh, about, um, not just about the, how they use machismo as a tool of uh, legitimacy, uh, as a way of selling themselves. So you have Mussolini and Putin who have stripped their shirts off and that goes with the propaganda. But the disturbing uh, part is that they, it's all about controlling bodies and controlling women's bodies and controlling policing sexuality. So many of these guys and Mussolini and Gaddafi in particular, it's as though Jeffrey Epstein, which will be familiar to your listeners, was the head of state. And we know how Jeffrey Epstein had fixers and scouts. Uh, there's, you know, now we have Ghislaine Maxwell on trial. And so if you're the head of state, though, you use the secret police, you use all kinds of uh, you have the whole bureaucracy devoted to your sex life and your, I call them pipelines of bodies. And the type of uh, strongman personality, they tend to, uh, they either get themselves into a di dictatorial position so they can have these pipelines of bodies. So Gaddafi had scouts when he would give a a speech at a university, he had, he would kind of find the most beautiful girls. And then they would, the next day, the secret police would come and he had sex dungeons. He had, he had sex slaves and sex captives. It's really horrible. Mussolini had thousands and thousands of women. He didn't keep them captive. He just had them summoned and then they would leave. Um, but he had many, many long-term relationships and children. And it was a very, very complicated system. But what's interesting is in the 21st century, and it's late 20th century, 21st century, you have men like Berlusconi and Trump who go into, uh, so they're businessmen, but they also go into sectors like modeling. So Trump had Trump models. He was, he owned Miss Universe. They go into areas of business that will allow them the pipeline of bodies. And so Berlusconi did the same thing because he had his TV shows. So that, that was a lure he could hold over women. And he also was very involved in beauty pageants. So, so that was very difficult to write, especially the parts about the sexual violence. But I wanted to, it's the first book actually to take uh, masculinity and body politics seriously and, and place them up there with propaganda and corruption and violence as a tool of rule. Nobody else has done this before because political scientists don't tend to take masculinity that seriously. But it is a serious thing. And, and you mentioned Epstein as an example. Harvey Weinstein is another example. Harvey yes. Weinstein did have, you know, he had apparatuses to get 
you know, certainly the pipeline in. And he hired the Black Cube company to shut people up and did all, all these horrible things. Uh, when I was reading it, I thought of the guy, the guy from Cleveland that had the women locked up in the basement that wound up killing himself. Like, that's who I'm like. It's like if this guy was in charge of the country. These that's are, it. That's you know, it. Really, and, really sick people. And what's what I one thing I found very interesting because it is very bleak. I had to do a lot of yoga and uh, and and they were, they were trying to finish the Gaddafi section. If, if if your listeners read it, you'll you'll then know what I'm talking about. I had to you know visit the wine store, uh, go and do yoga, like anything to get through this because it was very difficult, especially as a woman, to write. But what I found interesting since the release of the book is that most um, people don't want to discuss it and most reviewers don't mention it. Um, this whole air, this whole, the whole sexual violence, because it's, it, it's in, and one review said, well, it's a little unseemly, like I shouldn't have been talking about it. Oh my God. So it, that has gone largely not commented on. Uh, and I found that interesting. It's like people aren't really ready to hear that, even though we hear all the time about people who, uh, you know, sexually assault people. We hear about Trump, but somehow the fact that this is actually part of strongmen rule, I think many people weren't ready to have that integrated. I'm, I, you know, it's, it's, it's a very well-written chapter and, um, you know, my God, I can't, I can't even imagine having to write it and research it and all that. So, um, you know, I, I'm <laughs> grateful to you for having, having done so. Um, I've been trying to make the point and the connection between the 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 attacks on Roe v. Wade and and encroaching fascism, like that it's not really it, people are talking about oh when does life begin and stuff like that and not to minimize those those conversations those are theological conversations the issue is not about that the issue is that this is this is how fascists control people I mean there's nothing more authoritarian than the state forcing a woman to have a, a kid against her will and, and carry a pregnancy to term that she does not want. So I, I've been trying to, um, you know, frame it that way, frame this as an issue, because also it's not, I, I think a lot of men read about abortion stuff and they just, they just gloss over it and think, ah, well, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to have an abortion. Probably no one I'm with is going to have one, whatever. There's nothing I can do. But I feel like it's not a, just a women's issue. I feel like this is a this is a democracy issue, and by yes. attacking it, um, what the you know what the Supreme Court has done and is doing is attacking democracy itself and paving the uh, and laying the foundation and the groundwork for whether it's Trump who runs in twenty four or if it's DeSantis or somebody you know worse. Jo Josh Hawley comes to mind. I think you know somebody like that who would God knows Night what's going on in nightmare. His yeah. So that that's that's what I think. Anyway, I, I really do think it's like, guys, this isn't, you know, take it out of one frame and look at it in the big picture yeah. because they're trying to stomp on everybody's rights with this. Yeah, it is a democracy issue. But you to fully appreciate that, you have to know how how important control of bodies and control of sexuality is to authoritarian regimes. So we need we need the history of that. We, we have ample uh you know, we have ample evidence and history just in the states through evangelicals, and there's a long, you know, very tormented history 
just uh, in what was supposed to be a democracy, but it's really part of the formula, um, as is in the 21st century, and it always has been. Uh, now, um, you know, attacking uh, being anti-trans is mm -hmm. part of the formula, but being anti uh, anti-gay has been part of been part of autocracy since the very beginning, and and it's interesting when you do a a global book like mine, because I I have uh, strong men who are from Europe, like the fascists and Putin, and but I also have Gaddafi, who uh, is from Libya, and I have Mobutu, who's from the Congo, and these were anti-colonial coups. These were uh, anti-imperialists, and Gaddafi was a man of the left, but they were just as homophobic as their right-wing uh, counterparts. So anti-gay is, and today anti-trans is like across the board. Um, so policing sexuality and controlling bodies um, who don't fit your state definition of normality is part of the formula. And of course, it's, it's a big hypocrisy because these guys do it, literally whatever you know, they want. The hypocrisy is sort of off the charts and they can you know, behave abhorrently um, while pretending to be these, uh, you know, paragons of virtue. And it goes back into the last two things in the book, really, corruption and violence, um, which I think are more obvious when people think about dictators, but nonetheless super important. So um, what do you mean exactly when you say corruption? So I, I, I added the corruption chapter because it's almost like, yeah, of course they're all corrupt, but it was very important to unpack that. So it's not just financial corruption, and I talk about Putin's kleptocracy and the cronyism, but it's also, uh, I wanted to explore the kind of moral corruption because a lot of that chapter is about how um, strongmen uh, set up the circumstances to corrupt people and to attract corrupt and corruptible people into their employ. So uh, when we, so for Trump, I, I, you know, talked about how, like, there are all the violations of the Hatch Act, and how you want to hire people who are already compromised. So throughout a strongman history, um, many uh, states have hired criminals, or they've pardoned. They use pardons to free up the worst elements of society for government service. Because if somebody comes in and they're already corrupt, they are going to be able to, they won't object to what you're doing mm -hmm. and they will be able to corrupt others. So it's like a downward spiral. And so I talk about how uh, the kind of government and civil servants culture that, uh, that, that shifts when you have these guys come in to favor the corrupt and reward corruption. And so with Trump, this was very marked how he, he, he purged, you know, the civil service of, uh, he made it hostile work environments, uh, especially in the Department of State, um, at the EPA, and a lot of people had to leave and then um, sketchy people came in and they changed the, um, the, the application form for civil servants so that you didn't have to declare like some of your conflicts of interest. And that's the kind of thing, like bureaucracy might seem boring, but this is how you end up with like uh, a lot of little Stephen Millers, yeah. right? 
Yeah. Um, so that's what, so that's, I, so the corruption was not just about finances. It was also about behavior. How do you get people to accept all the unethical things? And then the final point is that most of these guys are, are criminals and uh, a large number of them, when they come into office, they're already criminals. They have criminal records or they're under investigation. Um, yep. And Trump is, I think we haven't quite grasped the magnitude of Trump's criminality. It's, it's astonishing that he was president. He is a criminal in multiple ways. Um, it, it's, it's quite staggering. Yeah, but it, it, going back to his, you know, basically his, his childhood, his second generation money launderer, all this kind of stuff. And also, you know, what, four dozen women now have been credibly accused him of rape or sexual assault, which nobody ever mentions. It's not, everyone just sort of glosses over that. And it's just this horrible thing. Um, when you were talking about that, it reminded me of the guy, I forget his name, the, the sniper guy or the, uh, the SEAL who went off the, and, and, and killed people that Trump pardoned and then brought to the White House and tried to boost up. Yeah. So he likes characters like that, who now that guy's gonna like Trump forever and be on the Trump team. Mm -hmm. And if Trump needs somebody killed, he could probably call him and be like, hey, buddy, I did a favor for you. And, uh, and look you know. at Kyle Rittenhouse. Yes. So that's, I've been tweeting about that, but that could go, that's, if you've read the book, you have a frame to understand what's going on with Kyle Rittenhouse, who has now been lionized because he, he knows how to kill. Uh, he killed you know, somebody. And those are the talents that are being rewarded right now in the GOP. So his, he's become a celebrity because he's a killer. And this is very disturbing, but this is when you have a political culture that is no longer in democracy, but is in autocracy, these are the kinds of people you want, uh, you want to have with you. Yeah, it goes. And that's the last piece is the violence, which uh, you know, we've had some violence in the country. We've had Charlottesville. Obviously, we've had the insurrection um, and things. Here, uh, and, you know, every other day, it seems like there's a there's a shooting somewhere. But in terms of sustained, you know, riot type Civil War-esque violence, we've been, I think, very fortunate that that has not happened yet. Because when you consider all of the, the the brainwashing and the disinformation campaigns and the Fox News and everything else, and all of the guns that are out there and ammo and all this kind of stuff, and the 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 ease with which these people can hook up on Facebook or you know however they do it now, um, it, it it's really it's it it's a, a powder keg I think, and uh, it's really terrifying. Yeah, and. Uh... That's why um, you know there are people who study civil wars who think we have all the uh, conditions in place. Um, and there's been because of the pan and the pandemic has accelerated everything as well as Trump radicalizing people. Mm -hmm. And and the key is the the violence chapter is not only uh, shows that over a hundred years how uh, what has stayed the same. Uh, in terms of mass imprisonments and different types of concentration camps, but also what has changed in, the, in our age of the smartphone and citizen journalism, you don't have quite as much open, uh, open massacres on a very large scale. Yeah. They still go on, but it's harder to pull it off. So you have like what the Chinese have done, where you have a region and you seal it off and you, you, you do it there. And that's of course, because anti-Muslim 
Now you target one population, but a lot of the, the chapter in violence also looks at how, how these people use propaganda to get people to see violence in a different way. And that's one of the scariest things that Trump did is that from the very beginning of his campaign, and I have a huge file with a list of all the times he had rallies starting in 2015, where he said, oh, we used to be able to bash people's heads in. You know, we used to be able to punch people. So he came out swinging. He mm -hmm. came out very strongly advocating violence, um, physical violence. And so we've had five years of that now, um, six years actually. And, and so he has successfully convinced millions of Americans that violence is uh, an acceptable way of doing politics. And that's why there's that poll, which people comment along a, a lot on right now, that showed that um, like something like 40% of Republicans felt that violence uh, might be necessary to restore Trump to power. And that is a huge, we will look back and Trump is one of the most skilled propagandists of our times. He's like a 21st century Goebbels. He's extremely skilled. And he spent uh, a huge amount of his time, he invested a huge amount of his time in, in propagandizing. That's what he did. That was his main thing he did besides trying to make money uh, for himself off of the White House. And he's had, he's had a huge success with not just with the big lie, but with violence is now something that's patriotic. Um, and that's, that's where we're now gonna live with the effects of that. I wanna talk more about Trump. We have to take a quick break. We'll be right back with Ruth Ben-Ghiat. When I found out that BetterHelp was going to be a sponsor of the Prevail podcast, I was thrilled because, you know, this is such a great service and it's something I think people really need. I think it really fills a, a void. I mean, there's major mental health problems going on in the country right now because of quarantine issues and <laughs> pandemic issues and if you listen to my podcast, you know we're all under, you know, we've been traumatized by this Trump guy, right? So along comes BetterHelp. They assess your needs, match you with your own licensed professional therapist. You connect in a safe and private online environment. So it's super convenient. And you can start in under 48 hours, which is great because you don't want to go, you know, try to find a therapist and then you get, you know, well, I have a, an appointment in six months or whatever. It's just, you know, two days, there you are. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches, so they make it easy and free to change counselors if you need to. And they're available for clients worldwide. I know we have people listening that aren't just in the United States. BetterHelp, worldwide. They offer a broad range of expertise, which may not be locally available in many areas, because sometimes, you know, local therapist, you live in a small town, maybe it's somebody you know, it's awkward. This is a, a, a wonderful way around that problem. <laughs> um... They have licensed professional counselors who specialize in depression, stress, anxiety, relationships, sleep problems, trauma, anger, grief, self-esteem, sexual and gender identity, you name it, they, they've got it. So many people have been using BetterHelp that they're actually recruiting additional counselors in all 50 states. Start living a happier life today. Get 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com greg. Join over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Greg, G-R-E-G, for 10% off your first month. Thanks, BetterHelp. Okay, we're back with Ruth Ben-Ghiat. I want to talk about Trump now. Um, I know we've been talking about him a little bit. 
I get the appeal. Now, some of the strong men, I think, when they come into power, they do do certain things that they can point at that that are kind of accomplishments, right? Um, when Gaddafi took over, um, he nationalized the oil, the state oil company, renegotiated the lease with British Petroleum, had all of this money, which he used to provide health care and education. Those were all that's exactly what you should do. Then he went totally crazy and bonkers and did all these evil things. But he had that initial thing that he did that people could be like, well, maybe he's not so bad. Um, you know, Hitler, uh, mod at, at the, the ruins of, of the First World War, was able to get the military back. And Mussolini famously made the trains run on time. Or maybe he didn't, but that's what it was said. So I don't get the thing I don't get about Trump is he didn't do anything. He didn't deliver anything did he or or is this not no longer necessary am i reading it wrong what do you think well i don't see those guys didn't deliver anything either really i mean Gaddafi's a bit of an exception he wasn't because he was an anti he was a man of the left and he was an anti-colonial ruler and he wanted to kind of save his people from uh the degradation of imperialism so uh, but Hitler, yeah, Hitler built some, he, yes, he restored the prestige of the military and he built lots of roads and stuff, but you can't, that's the point of the book is that you can't separate those things from the violence mm -hmm. um, and from the propaganda and from the destruction. And ultimately these are extremely destructive realms and these leaders don't have a sense of public welfare. They, it's all about them. It's all about protecting them getting rich. You know, Hitler and Trump both said, oh, oh, I don't take a salary because I'm all about sacrificing myself for the nation. But then they made money in many, many other ways. Um, and, you know, when we think about Mussolini, the trains run on time. Well, nobody knew if they run on time or not because there were no strikes allowed. Uh, communications was, there was no free press. Um, you couldn't complain about anything or you were imprisoned or killed. So uh, I see them as extremely destructive uh, individuals. And the more you understand how they govern uh, and this, I did not expect Trump to be so similar in his temperament. Um, but unfortunately for America, he had pretty much uh, a very similar personality to a lot of these guys. Now the outcome is different today. We don't have as many one party states today. We don't have as many genocides you know, it, it, the outcomes are different, but the instincts to surround yourself with family members and cronies and flatterers, um, to hire and fire people, um, all of that is to, to create a kind of buffer around you so you can steal and be a thief. All of that is the same. So the key is that they're not interested in public welfare. Uh, they have no interest in, in, governance in a traditional sense. Uh, they're interested in uh, amassing absolute power and profiting off of, you know, governance. And I wasn't, I didn't yeah. mean to suggest that they did anything good. I meant that they were using it, you know, as, as propaganda, you know, as something like, hey, we did this one thing, look at what we did. Um, yeah. Just to be clear, I'm not like, I'm not yeah, saying yeah, great I job. Okay. Okay. Um, the thing is that people didn't understand about Trump is that he had no interest in governing. Uh, he, his aims were different and his priorities were different than any other president, Republican or Democrat in the past. 
because he his aims were to because he's a money launderer he's a criminal and he his aims were to make money off of the white house and yes. so it's so he had no interest in the business of being president so that's why he spent one out of every three days until COVID hit one out of every three days visiting a trump property and so people would say oh he's golfing again he's so lazy he's not lazy he's doing what he wants to be doing which is making money off of the presidency so it's very interesting one third of his time was spent uh visiting his own businesses in a, in a very you know like bald-faced manner and then the other thing he was interested in was uh, indoctrinating people and creating a cult of uh, personality and loyalty around himself so that he could be untouchable. So that no matter what he did, people would still love him. They would still believe in him and he could get away with it, whatever crimes he was committing. And he successfully imposed on the GOP, uh, he turned it into kind of an authoritarian party. He imposed it. Mm -hmm. He imposed a, a party discipline uh, that you see only in authoritarian states. And that is why um, that is why uh, when Republicans who de deviate from the party line uh, had death threats. So it's not just Democrats who have death threats, it's Republicans. So during the second impeachment trial, uh, any Republican who voted to impeach Trump had to buy body armor. So these are these are um, transformations uh, that are authoritarian in nature, and that was the other thing that he did. So making money, creating personality cult, and making himself untouchable, and and imposing an authoritarian control on the party. Um, that's those were his goals. Not not uh, ministering to the population in a pandemic. He, he just he mm -hmm. didn't care about any of that. When the pandemic first uh, came in, in March 2020, I did an interview with HuffPost and I said something got people upset because they weren't ready to hear it. And I said that Trump doesn't care if you live or die. This couldn't care less if, if there was mass death because he doesn't care about Americans. He only cares about himself. Well, that's you are absolutely 100 percent correct. Um, now, you said before you were even presumably during the campaign, you were watching him thinking, oh my God, this is like Mussolini 2.0 here. <laughs> the first press conference that Sean Spicer, who was the first press secretary had after Trump was sworn in was when he went up there and talked about the inauguration, the size of the crowd at the inauguration, which everybody who had watched it on TV knew was smaller than Obama's. And yet Spicer insisted that that was not the case. And even he seemed like, you know, he knew he was lying, but um, what were your thoughts at that time? And what are your thoughts about that now? Because that strikes me as a really important tone setting moment for the entire administration that was to come. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that because it's easy for us to forget these things. And this was uh, this was a breach of presidential custom that was one of the first signs uh, after he got into office that he was not going to be a normal president of either party, that his priorities, again, were, um, were becoming uh, known as the best president ever, having a personality cult, so he has to have 
you know, not only had to be much better than Obama, he had to have, he, he was going to be lying and struck to those around him to lie. And so the Spicer thing, what I thought at the time was Spicer was being corrupted in, in public. Mm -hmm. The corruption of Spicer was being demonstrated in public. And that's how they get you. Um, because after that, I and mean, Spicer was kind of in, right? That the yeah. Godfather quote, you know, I try and get out and they, they keep drawing me back in. Um, once you do that publicly, he's, he's got you. And that's what he did to many, many people. And so this was the first instance of that. Yeah. Um, okay. I know you've got to go. So I've got, I got two more questions and then I will release you. I think about Orban, Victor Orban, who had some ties to, to Trump. And now what's happening with Tucker Carlson, basically going to Hungary, doing the show from there, just trumpeting this guy who's awful and, and, and a, an autocrat for sure. Um, what happens to these propaganda people historically in these regimes? I know that we don't have the TV. It's not exactly analogous, but is there hope that people like Tucker and Sean Hannity and Laura Ingram and these other purveyors of, of just shit, awful fascist propaganda are going to get what's coming to them? What do you think is going to happen? It's hard to think that they'll get what's coming to them because Fox acts like a state media, but it is independent and it's Murdoch and Murdoch is be, he does what he wants to do. And also, uh, unfortunately, uh, you know, Fox was, it's, it's very successful and Tucker Carlson's show is one of the most watched shows in all of America. So they, they, there's a lot of, been a lot of discussion about how they, um, they take the cue from their base. And as the base has become more radicalized, they have become more radicalized too. So, it's it's a huge problem. And the I've watched, I've written a couple of pieces for my newsletter, Lucid, about the GOP's fetish of Hungary and Tucker Carlson going there and Mike Pence going there and talking about how he hopes that abortion rights will be taken away soon. And the reason they all glom on to Hungary is, you know, Putin is, many of them are heavily invested in Russia and there's all of those ties that we know about, but Putin can also be a little toxic and he's a little extreme. People fall out of windows. Um, he invades places. Hungary has the appearance of um, moderation. It's mm -hmm. not, in reality, it's not at all. The guy ruled by decree in 2020. There's, no, there's not much freedom at all. But you don't hear as much about violence. You don't hear about people being poisoned. And so it seems to be a, a quote, more acceptable autoc autocratic model. And that's one reason uh, that they think it's going to be like it looks more respectable. Like, I don't think mm. Mike Pence would go and stand next to Putin. And, uh, but he didn't have any problem or Tucker or others standing next to Orban. Even though Orban, you know, if, if you believe Mogilevich's right-hand man who testified is a money, is a bag man for Mogilevich, yes. you know, a comma, one of, one of the most powerful Russian mobsters or international organized criminals alive. Yes. That's who Orban yeah. is. And, and Orban is, he, he, he's got the son-in-law, you know, they've all, they've all got this same um, 
uh, corruption schemes. And, and the EU has really uh, appeased him over and over again. He should be kicked out of the EU. He shouldn't, he shouldn't have EU funding anymore, but he does. So when we talk about modern autocrats, we have to talk about their Western enablers. And unless that changes, they don't have much incentive to become more moderate. Yep. Um, okay, so we are recording this on on December 29th. It's not going to run until until 2022 in January, but okay. so lots of things can happen between now and then. But yeah. it feels like I I'm so up and down with with the future. There are days when I feel like we are so fucked that it's just all hope is lost, and I don't know how we can possibly dig out of this. And then there's other days when I'm like, no, the, 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 enough change will be made. We have enough people in power. It's not going to happen where it's going to be. They're just going to go arrest everybody. But maybe enough things will happen that that democracy will be saved. Um, and I, I, I just I go back and forth. Like, uh, so where are you right now in this thing? Should we be afraid? Is there a cause for hope? How are you feeling? Twenty twenty two is going to be absolutely pivotal. Um, I feel um, many many bad things could happen. Uh, many people have worked very hard to put us in a situation for bad things to happen. But I also think that we haven't heard the last of all of the energies that led to Black Lives Matter protests. It's very important mm. to, to remember two things. One, uh, Black Lives Matter protests were multi-generational, multiracial. They involved between 20 and 26 million people across the country. Uh, and it was the biggest social uh, protest movement in history in American history. Two, it translated directly into um, getting rid of Trump. We voted him out and there was record voter turnout for Biden. And so we just did this recently. Yeah. And we should not forget this. That said, um, there were 80 million people who didn't vote. And it's going to be very, very important to counteract uh, and compensate for all the voter suppression that those people be registered. So if people want to do something, the best thing to do, and, and all the democracy experts say this, is to get involved with voter registration, uh, with voting rights, because if you, it, the, it's the GOP is trying to make your vote uh, null and void, but uh, there still will be elections. There are always elections, uh, in, even in Hungary, in, except you know, they fix them, but they <laughs> hold them. So that's, uh, that's, that's important to do. Um, I think that if the uh, GOP wins the, the, you know, if they get control of the House and the Senate, all kinds of uh, uh, autocratic scenarios could unfold, but we'll just have to see. Okay. I, I, I do feel kind of hopeful. I'm going to say I do. You're right about the, the BLM stuff. And I, I don't know. I just feel like he's such an asshole. Like people don't want to be governed by most people don't want to be governed by assholes. I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong. There's a lot of assholes that have come out of the woodwork, but at the end of the day, I don't know. I don't, I don't, I don't know how, how many people who are competent to make this stuff happen are going to be, uh, eager for it. I hope. I hope. I hope. That's all we can do. Um, okay. Your book is called Strong Men, Mussolini to the Present. And your sub stack, which is excellent, is called Lucid. I encourage everybody to buy and read the book. Sign up for uh, the, the newsletter, which, which is wonderful. And you do, I have not had, you do these Q&As at Lucid too, right? Where people can, how does that work? Is that on Zoom? How does that work? Yeah, you register. We were hacked. Um, 
and by far-right extremists. And I just published a piece in New York Daily News about uh, the experience of being hacked um, by these uh, homophobe and racists, but it only made us stronger. So we now have a lot of uh, other security protocols in place, but you register and they're very, they're, they're fantastic. Um, it's an hour Q and A um, and uh, we've been doing it uh, every week for eight months. And so there's a real solidarity. So it's a kind of supportive safe space to ask all kinds of questions. And it's a real, uh, it's a real group has formed. It's great. Uh, I, I think everybody really enjoys it. Um, even, even though uh, I will say scary things from time to time, it's a space where people, many people, if there's activists, there's lawyers, there's all kinds of people who attend them. And uh, many people have found each other um, through these weekly Q and A's. All right, so check it out. It's on Lucid. Ruth Ben-Giat, thank you so much for taking the time. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Greg. The Prevail theme song is by Matthew Fassa. Sophia Tereshenko provided the Russian introduction. Voice talent is provided by Tally Briggs, Signadella, Stephanie St. John, Brett Petticord, Ryan Byrne at History Falls Apart, and me. Thanks to Allison Gill, Molly Hawkey, Kanai Williams, and everyone else at MSW Media. Please subscribe to the Prevail website with updates every Tuesday, Friday, and Sunday. Your $5 monthly subscription funds the site and the podcast. Visit gregoliar.com to learn more. Thanks for listening. Drive safely. Don't forget to tip your server. Until next time, we shall prevail.